From Cape Town, South Africa, this is the Bowman's Shipping Podcast. The show about everything and anything to do with ships, the law, and some stuff in between. I'm your host, Jeremy Prane, a maritime attorney and partner at Bowman's, a leading African corporate and commercial law firm. In each episode, I speak to one of my colleagues or an outside guest and do a deep dive into the world of shipping with a legal slant. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. In this episode, I speak to my colleague and newly met up partner, Lana Stockton. Lana has carved out a niche for herself dealing with crew and stowaway repatriation issues and has been inundated with requests for assistance since the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic. I talked to her about her experiences and challenges. Lana Stockton, welcome to the Bowman Shipping Podcast. And might I say, welcome to the partnership as well. Lana, the COVID pandemic turned the world upside down, and like most sectors, international shipping was affected significantly. Are you able to sketch a picture of what happened in South Africa as related to shipping? Yeah, sure, Jeremy. I mean, everything changed basically overnight in South Africa. I think we had about three days' notice of the first cases, and uh, our government was quite quick to react and reacted quite severely. which, I mean, there's a debate as to whether that was necessary or not, um, but that's a totally different story. So overnight, in terms of shipping, we had about three days' notice, and after that three-day period, our, our ports were completely closed to all operations. All passenger ships were banned, all crew changes were banned, and only essentially um, essential cargo was allowed to be worked at, at the nine commercial South African ports. The complication with that was there was no definition of what this essential cargo was, which created a whole lot of chaos and problems surrounding that issue. But essentially, everybody had to start um, from scratch and try to figure out what was permissible and what wasn't. Yeah, there was quite a bit of media attention initially on the cruise ships and passengers um, getting stuck uh, on vessels and being refused entry or disembarkation. And in fact, one of your very first challenges was dealing with over 1,700 passengers stuck on board the Ida Mara in Cape Town. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, of course. I mean, uh, that was a very interesting matter. and Everything moved quite quickly. So what happened there was we were notified that the lockdown was going to start within two days. And the Ida Mira was, was in Cape Town and um, everybody was scrambling to essentially get back to their home countries. The majority of the passengers on board were German. So the German government was was thoroughly involved in the operation. What we needed to do was repatriate these passengers before essentially all the airports closed and all the flights stopped. And we needed to obtain permission for that um, from the Department of Transport, the diplomatic authorities. It was was quite, quite an operation. We also worked with the South African Maritime Safety Authority just from a humanitarian point of view, to ensure that you know, the, the rights of these passengers were, were being looked after and they weren't going to be stuck on the cruise ship like the situation in Japan that happened a few months prior, because that was the, the major concern. After a lot of back and forth, and after everybody kind of collaborating to figure out what the best arrangement would be, we, we got everybody out of South Africa um, within about three or four days. I think, you know, the approach taken by the South African government um, was one of collaboration, and that was that was great to see. Everybody was trying to figure out what was what was happening, and uh, we were lucky enough to kind of be involved in crafting a solution um, for the owners and the insurers of, of that vessel. 
I suppose some of the listeners wonder what a lawyer is doing in the middle of all this. And often it's interesting when you speak to people about the kind of work that we do, particularly in South Africa, they are often surprised at, at the role that we play. And I wondered whether um, you can just tell us why it is important that lawyers play a role in essentially coordinating a lot of this. Yeah, of course. So, yeah, I think a lot of people don't know the kind of on-the-ground, coal-face role that, that we play, especially shipping lawyers. And I'd say the, the major purpose of that role is risk management and, and coordination. I mean, the owners aren't here, the insurers aren't here. And they need someone that understands their business, understands the risks of their business, to be there on the ground ensuring their interests are protected. And that's exactly what we bring to the table. We ensure coordination of everything. We ensure protection of interests, protection of rights, and also importantly, a good reporting line. So you're not receiving reports through broken telephone and through various parties. You're receiving report backs through, through someone who knows what's going on. And I imagine a lot of that uh, is based on trust that has been built up um, with the various parties that we deal with over the years. Lana, once the issues around stuck passengers pretty much resolved themselves, a lot of attention began to shift onto the plight of ship's crew, who are routinely overlooked and ignored by the world at large. And many nations were so concerned for their own safety and containing the spread of the virus that they closed ports uh, and blocked or at least seriously constrained entry of crew. How was the situation addressed by the South African authorities and the lawmakers? Yeah, so in terms of crew generally, I think the, the kind of plight of crew has been you know, in the spotlight for the past 18 months. And hopefully it will continue to shine a light on, on crew and how important it is to look after them um, because they're the ones that are, that are making sure that these vessels work. In South Africa, I think we saw constant change as to what was allowed initially absolutely no crew changes allowed. Then obviously, you know, as the government started speaking to stakeholders, they realized, you know, we need to allow medivacs. So that was included in the regulation. So you started seeing opening up as we went along and as the kind of pandemic progressed from the hard lockdown to kind of softer lockdowns later in 2020, we saw some ports opening up to crew changes and those were the larger ports in South Africa. The smaller ports, again, no crew changes at all. And that was essentially just to make sure that we monitored the process or the government and the authorities monitored that process very, very carefully. But, I mean, you ended up in situations where you had guys on board for, for over 18 months because they were on long contracts already. And, you know, mentally, I think the strain was just unbearable for these guys. And I suppose with the shifting sands of um, regulations and, and legislation, again, as lawyers, our role there is to, to interpret and to understand that and to communicate that to the clients um, who are obviously under huge pressure to, to resolve many of these crew incidents. Who are the major players in any given crew-related incident that you've been involved in of recent times? Sure. Um, in South Africa, you have, I'll start with the, the South African Maritime Safety Authority. So they have a very broad mandate governed by legislation here in South Africa. And one of their mandates is to, to ensure crew wellness and safety. And that's crew wellness and safety um, essentially for crew that are of South African origin, nationals of South Africa, or crew operating in South African waters or the exclusive economic zone. So it's a very broad mandate to ensure safety of life at sea as well. So you have the Maritime Safety Authority on one end, which essentially is a division of the, the Department of Transport. So they are the kind of overarching body in South Africa, and they have a specific maritime security cluster 
that deals with crewing issues. So you deal with the Department of Transport, the South African Maritime Safety Authority. You then deal with the Department of Health and specifically Port Health. So Port Health authorities, obviously during the pandemic, essential to this whole network of, of people working together. And then finally you deal with the Immigration Authority. So that's the Department of Home Affairs in South Africa, obviously to ensure that all immigration requirements are met um, when crew uh, are entering South Africa and they are foreign nationals. And I imagine now it's all it's about knowing particular individuals and, and building relationships with them specifically. Yeah, I mean, over the past year, I've built some really strong relationships with various people at these departments, and it's proved to be really helpful. So right now, what does the legal landscape look like when it comes to crew issues? So at the moment, um, it's a little bit difficult because where we are in South Africa at the moment is entering our third wave of infections. Before that, we were seeing an opening up of everything. Our ports were operating at full capacity again. Obviously, the liner industry is doing really, really well. Um, our ports were full. Operations were continuing. You know, crew changes were fully permitted. And um, we had kind of a, a very good system going as to, you know, COVID-19 tests when crew are coming onto South African land, certain periods of time waiting for those good turnaround times, so 48 hours or less, um, and crew changes would be allowed. If new crew are flying into South Africa, 72-hour requirement in terms of a negative COVID-19 test. So it was, it's been running pretty smoothly. In terms of the third wave and where we are now is, I think we're entering a time of COVID fatigue and vaccine optimism, and I think it's the perfect storm. So we have seen quite a lot of COVID cases on board vessels and, and not just one or two, we're talking about, you know, 17 crew members all testing positive. So the government's really at a stage, a transitionary stage, having to adjust. Do we go back to what we had in place in, in March 2020 and just prohibit crew changes? Or how do we handle this? And I think it's kind of a a day-by-day -day exercise for them, getting all these authorities together and discussing the issues on a case-by-case -case basis. What has been quite encouraging to see is that the physical and, and now especially the mental well-being of crew has become a top priority for many owners and PNI clubs and certainly a lot of work has been done, a lot of literature has been produced over the last few months or so and various initiatives have been undertaken. What has been your experience in dealing with crew-related incidents in South Africa in this context since the beginning of the global lockdown? So, yeah, I mean, crew wellness in the spotlight, as I said before, and it's really good to see. In terms of what I've seen since the beginning of lockdown, I think, you know, it started out pretty well. I think you had very few incidents of, of COVID-19, so physical wellness was, was great on board vessels. I think, you know, the protocols put in place, um, were excellent and you know if there was even you know a small kind of headache or fever these crew members were isolated immediately um, reports were made to the relevant authorities and, and issues were sorted out quite quickly in terms of medivac or what, whatever kind of medical attention was required I think the beginning of lockdown really saw you know difficulties in terms of crew mental wellness and managing that and you know agitation on board vessels impatience you know wanting solutions quickly and it's kind of managing those those emotions of you know the master of vessel not understanding why he can't come into a south african port and operate normally um, and explaining you know why the regulations are what they are 
and you know it, it gets exacerbated with issues like you know stowaways on board for example um, you have an unauthorized person on board the ship where you have a you know crew members who've been stuck there for 20 months they need to look after someone they don't know it's a safety hazard and you know temperatures get pretty high yeah i mean i imagine with stowaways that's just one additional factor that you deal with in south africa because stowaway issues are so prevalent and traditionally south africa has had a relatively good track record with managing stowaways and and repatriation but i suppose in the light of covid it's just an extra stressful factor Perhaps you can talk just a little bit about your stowaway experiences and, and how you've dealt with them in the various incidents that you've had to, to manage. Sure, of course. So, as you said, you know, South Africa's infamous for the issue of stowaways, um, and that's something that, that our authorities are currently trying to address, and I think it's a great initiative. But the problem is during lockdown, I mean, the, the kind of economic climate, people not having work, not having jobs, not having food on the table, thinking that, you know, if I can get on this vessel and get to Europe, I'll, I'll get a better life. That was their, their best option at the time. And, you know, the incidence of stowaways totally skyrocketed over the, the COVID period. And we actually had one very, very interesting matter where a 14-year-old young boy from Tanzania ended up boarding a vessel, not, not in South Africa, in West Africa. It was a container vessel of a very, very large, well-known shipping line. And um, this vessel essentially travelled all over the world. The boy was on board for about nine or ten months and um, what the owners and insurers were trying to do was, was disembark this young boy. I mean, he's a minor on board a fully operational vessel, and they were denied permission to disembark all over. So United Arab Emirates, I think Sri Lanka, Europe, just battered wherever they, they sought permission to disembark. And the vessel came around South Africa and said, you know, they, they said, let's give this a try here. And they asked Bowman's to help. And we got kind of all the authorities around the table and um, our emphasis here was, you know, to get SAMHSA on board from, from the humanitarian perspective, um, you know, in terms of what the IMO said about the importance of, of looking after stowaways and, sh- and ensuring the well-being um, of the crew and the stowaway and the fact that this, this young man was a minor. Uh, we motivated for the disembarkation of this young man as a stowaway in South Africa, where ordinarily um, our authorities would say he did not board in South Africa. Uh, we're not going to give him permission to disembark. And within a within a few days, and after a few kind of joint meetings with all of the authorities I mentioned earlier, we got permission to to disembark this young man, and he was just as happy as the crew on board. And I think that was a real triumph for everybody involved. Um, and it really brought to the forefront the importance of these kind of humanitarian concerns. Yes, you know, it adds another statistic to, to the stowaways in South Africa and our, and our records in our ports, but, you know, weighed against um, kind of the benefits of, of getting this, this young man home, I think, you know, the right decision was made. Yeah, it's good to see that, you know, with the right discussions and the right approach, um, you can find a level of pragmatism and common sense around dealing with issues in a way that you're able to get a, a good result for all parties concerned. And, you know, many of these instances go unsung. You've also done a little bit of work for Princess Cruises, and I think this is another interesting story that you could tell us a little bit more about. That was um, kind of, I'd say, about October 2020. So, you know, we're we're kind of coming out of hard lockdown. Things are changing a bit. But in South Africa at that time, crew changes were still prohibited. What was allowed was getting South African crew members home. 
So if you were a South African crew member on a foreign flag vessel, you could come home and, and this, this was permitted. It wasn't essentially a crew change, but it was a, a repatriation in a way. So that was kind of a victory um, that, we, that we were all very happy about. Princess Cruises started a great initiative um, to assist crew members that were stranded all over the world. Um, and what they did was they essentially used their cruise vessels, which couldn't be used for passengers, as kind of mobile repatriation ships. Yeah. And, and you know, put various crew members on board and sailed them home across the world. Um, great, great initiative and worked really, really well. And we, one of the Princess cruise vessels landed up in Cape Town. They were disembarking some South African passengers and they were on their way to their next destination. I, I, I'm not sure where it was, I can't recall, but I think it might have been South America. And um, what they needed to do essentially was disembark the South African medical crew. But the problem was these guys were going home, there was no medical crew on board. So you'd essentially need to conduct a crew change, which was prohibited in terms of the regulations. So Bowman's was again instructed here to assist in overcoming this obstacle. The regulation said no crew changes. What we were asking for was essentially a crew change, but a little bit different. I mean, this is an exceptional circumstance. You, you're going to have a vessel with no medical crew on board, so it's actually not fit to sail from a safety point of view. So the first thing I did there was contact the chief operating officer um, of SAMHSA, and, you know, I had a conversation with him. I said, you know, the regulations say no crew change, but now we're stuck in this kind of novel situation where we're taking a South African crew member home that's been on board for who knows how long. They can't operate anymore. They need a medical team on board. We need to put a new medical team on board. We've got these guys ready. You know, they've been quarantined. They've been tested. They can board. We just need the go-ahead to say conduct the crew change, the quote-unquote crew change. Initial pushback, just a flat no. And we were instructed after, you know, the flat no. And again, bringing the right people around the table, explaining the situation, kind of weighing the pros and cons. The, the crew change was permitted and we were able to, to get a new medical team on board and for this great operation to continue. Um, and that was an instance where we could overcome the regulations. And, and actually, it's, it's an example of you know, the flexibility that we have and the flexibility that the government was, was able to adopt in terms of a pandemic situation, despite what the black and white law said. Yeah, we tend to look at shipping, particularly commercial shipping, in, in isolation to, to other elements. You know, we just tend to look at the sea leg of, of a situation. But of course, when you're dealing with a, a repatriation, for example, it's a whole logistics operation, as you've explained. You've got to get crew members off the ship. You've got to get them to the airport. You've got to get them on an airplane. And, you know, a lot of flights were not available. So were you involved in some of the chartering of flights and the, some of the other logistics beyond just the sort of confines of the sea voyage? To a limited extent, we were. And I think because of the pandemic situation, we had to be involved. Again, you know, the chartering of flights and, and ensuring that there were permissions in place to get these flights off the ground or coming into South Africa, we needed special permissions from the Department of Transport. So you go from the kind of maritime security cluster of the department to the aviation cluster. And um, we were able to make contact with, with a lovely gentleman there who is extremely, extremely helpful and, and understands the urgency of these situations. And um, a recent example of that is essentially where we had um, a crew member of a tanker off Wolfers Bay with serious, serious COVID-19 um, symptoms. We 
managed um, through commercial correspondence to get him disembarked to Walfus Bay from the vessel by helicopter. Unfortunately, Walfus Bay being a tiny, tiny town, the ICU facility was just inadequate. They did not have the oxygen supply at all, and this man was critical. And what we were able to do was arrange for permission for a charter flight from Walfus Bay to Cape Town um, through the Department of Transport, you know, getting getting the authority um, for, for this specific plane to fly out into Cape Town and get this crew member um, to a local hospital here for emergency treatment. And we managed to do that within probably about three hours. Um, so the turnaround time was very, very quick. And I think the, once once we were able to put the case to the authorities that this, this was a life and death, life or death situation, everybody moved very, very quickly. The operations that these um, situations entail obviously come at a cost. Um, someone ultimately has to pick up the tab for delays and, and other expenses. And perhaps you can just sketch for us what the real consequences are from an operational and, and a cost perspective when, when these situations arise. Of course. I think it's probably best to do this by way of an example, maybe. So recently, you know, as I said earlier, the perfect storm of COVID fatigue and vaccine optimism, we're getting a lot more cases of COVID positive crew on board. Recently, a bulk carrier entered South African waters in order to work cargo at one of our commercial ports. And we had about 17 COVID positive crew members on board that vessel. Immediately, the port, the health authorities, immigration said, I'm sorry, no, you can take the positive guys off the vessel um, and put them into quarantine on shore. But the vessel has to quarantine for 10 days out of the anchorage and then has to be sanitized twice. The crew test, the negative crew tested again. So the negative crew have to remain on board for 10 days doing nothing at the anchorage. The ship doesn't operate. The ship obviously loses its slot alongside. It's, it's loading manganese ore. The, the consequences of that are it's a domino effect going forward in terms of losing that slot and losing that fixture. The cost of the quarantine on shore and essentially, you know, the port costs um, of, of sitting at the anchorage for that period of time. So you have the delay, you have the costs of um, all the COVID testing, you have your, your lawyer's fees, your commercial correspondent fees. And then finally, the current position adopted by ports at the moment is you know, if you have a partial positive crew on board, the only way that you can continue port operations would be to replace that entire crew. So, so essentially, after that 10-day quarantine period is completed and the negative crew test negative, they need to be taken off the vessel, sent home, and a whole new crew contingent needs to be flown in to South Africa and, and needs to sign onto that vessel before cargo operations can complete. So the costs are going to add up very, very quickly over the course of a few weeks. So one hopes that in time to come these situations will begin to taper off. And with that in mind, the million dollar question is where to from now in your view? So, so where to from here? I mean, we're taking this one day at a time. It's very, very important for us as lawyers to stay up to date with what position the ports are taking, what position the Department of Transport's taking, what position the health authorities are taking in terms of COVID-19 and in terms of where we are in our kind of wave of infections in South Africa and also in the global context. From a you know, ship owner's point of view and from a loss prevention point of view, um, from an insurance perspective, it's essentially very, very important at this stage to ensure that the crew is kept informed about what, what it needs to do to ensure that the crew is healthy. 
on board. Um, and that includes ensuring that, you know, the masters of the vessel, when they're coming into South Africa, make true and correct maritime health declaration. Even if a guy's got a slight cough, put it, write it down. You know, tell, tell the port authorities, because it's going to be better if you say it now. The consequences of, you know, coming out in the wash that this wasn't put in the, the, the maritime health declaration are, are pretty severe for the master, for the owner, for the ship. And I think we all kind of have a responsibility to, to stay on top of, of what's happening in the world. So where to from here? I can't say for sure. Um, but hopefully we're heading towards some light at the end of the tunnel. Um, and hopefully this has really put a spotlight on the importance of crew and going forward and coming out of the pandemic that we can still ensure that crew of, of a vessel is mentally and physically healthy at all times. Well, thanks very much, Lana. This has been a fascinating discussion especially learning about how your work as a lawyer intersects with other role players, often in a pragmatic way, to overcome what ultimately is a humanitarian concern beyond the narrow interests of commercial shipping. And I wish you well with the challenges to come. That's it for today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to give us a rating or write a review. And until next time, thanks for listening.